0: Log Talk
1: Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a monthly solutions oriented talk radio show. Each month, we dedicate 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education and education leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, this month, we so delighted that we have a special broadcast to look at uh, discipline in the classroom and what we can learn from the uh, most recent uh, uh, school incident in South Carolina, and we have uh, two really special guests with us today, uh, Dr. Jared Schertz and uh, Mr. Co- Kurt uh Lavarello. Thank you for coming in and welcome to both
2: of you. Thank you, Brian. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Brian. Uh to our faithful listeners, welcome back and thank you for being a part of our family of over uh five thousand listeners per month and uh to our new listeners, we're glad you've joined us. And so uh today we're gonna talk about and uh really discuss what we can learn from the recent incident in Spring Valley High School uh in Columbia, South Carolina. And and at this point we've we've heard so much and we've seen um, on the national news media um, about um, what happened in that classroom on that day. Um, and, you know, I've I've invited um, our two guests here today because of their expertise and the work that they've done in this area. And we've had a lot of people who have called and they've asked me a lot of questions about my opinion and what I think about it. And I thought, it would be good that we, we have this show today, and we're going to welcome guests to start to call in, and we're going to patch them in as as they call, and guests, feel free to call in at 657-383-1481, um, but I want to jump right in and start out. Um, Jared is a psychologist who um, has written um, um, uh, books and, and uh, articles about dealing with educators and and um one of the things that I, I thought about, Jared, as we we look at th- what happened in this incident is uh from a psychological point of view, um we we it, it's very clear that and no one is arguing that the uh the child was defiant and we've heard that um there were there there are all kinds of circumstances where the child is in foster care uh and there there are a lot of circumstances that had the child distressed and so given that um what is the responsibility uh of the school to uh to take care and and address and and be attuned to those issues um from from, from your point of view as a psychologist?
3: You well, know, it's, it's a terrific question, and let me first you know say thank you, Brian. It's always a privilege to spend time with you, you know, with as much as you've done for schools in this country and abroad. I always welcome the opportunity to spend time, and, and, and I do I want to convey that my hope is that we pay attention to how we are discussing this and not just what we're discussing, because the how means we're moving away from debate, we're moving away from right or wrong, we're moving into a place of learning so that we can grow from this experience, and I think that one thing that's clear from this experience is that we still have a long way to go in terms of helping the schools appreciate the various roles, the influences that potentiate this kind of situation. One of them is learning how to differentiate uh, defiance from resistance, and your question was, you know, what, what can schools do to, to help in that area, and one is really just starting to define the difference. Resistance being sort of a natural uh, interplay between forces for sameness and change, which people are experiencing all the time, and defiance being something more intense, some outright opposition. And even when that's occurring, we still are responsible for understanding where that defiance is coming from, because there are a lot Mm -hmm. of different areas or influences that can contribute to it that if we don't understand, we don't explore, we're likely to exacerbate it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And and so what what are you finding you you train teachers uh do teachers just generally speaking have the training to understand when these things are happening what what to
3: do and how to do it Teachers are are so willing and so interested to get more training but if we don't appreciate the fact that they are also themselves inundated they have the pressures of changing Uh, expectations of them from our federal guidelines they have pressures of evolving uh, behavioral challenges from students that we first need to appreciate the dilemma that they're in because they've got many kids to manage these kids don't always have the best attention spans perhaps contributed to by our high-tech technology you know there's a greater sense of entitlement there's children who just have a harder time focusing and I think they're desperate for more Beyond any of that, I'm hoping that they have an, an openness for what I call the paradoxical theory of change, which means if we don't understand where it's coming from, what's generating it, none of the tools and strategies do a lot of good.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Now, you know, um, one of the things that uh, I, I've received a num- number of calls about um, has been about the uh, what happened and how um, it was set up so to speak, for the school resource officer to come in. And so, um, as I mentioned, our other guest, uh, Kurt Lavarello, is uh, the executive director of the School Safety Advocacy Council. Um, Kurt has been uh, 25-plus years in law enforcement in South Florida, uh, served as a SRO supervisor. And so, Kurt, the question I have for you also is one about training, Um, and, and then we'll get to responsibility. But uh, first, I want to ask you about the training. What, what is it, one, that in your organization that you um, help, how you help uh, individuals who are in this role as SROs um, understand what, how to deal with um, adolescents, in most cases, uh, they're in high schools. Um, what is it that you, that you do and the, the, the position you take about their role?
2: thank you. And again, thanks for having me on the show as well. Uh, You know, one of the things we try to reach out to school and school administrators uh, to do and make sure we do successfully is that uh, probably in the last 20 years, the, the most fastest growing area of law enforcement in the country bar none has been that of the school resource officer program or, or law enforcement officers in schools. And The program can have tremendous success, and it has shared some incredible success stories around the country and elsewhere, but one of the the most absolute crucial elements, and there are two of them that go hand-in-hand with this program, uh, is one, to make sure that the selection is the right officer, the right fit to work with adolescent behavior and young people, and secondly make sure that the officer is trained because there's not a police academy in this country right now that prepares officers to work with young people in a school. They prepare them to work and handle things out on the streets and and aggression and behavior like that so the School Safety Advocacy Council has been there to make sure that when an officer is getting assigned to a school that the training is of the level that at least gives them the minimum basic skills to go in and work with young people, such as understanding special education, understanding the roles of a counselor, the roles of teachers, and to make sure that they're best equipped to go in there and handle the situation that they would handle on a day-to-day basis. But what we saw uh, you know, last week was a terribly disturbing incident, and it goes back to there. there also has to be an equal amount of training for the educators on that campus to make sure that they are well aware of what the unique role of that officer is on their campus as well.
1: Sure, sure. And and you 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 made a really uh profound point here about the not only that does it have to be the right person is that the training that this person received to be a police officer does not necessarily mean that they are uh they are trained properly to go into schools that, that there's a difference there. And I think it's one that has been recognized and certainly I share that, that view that it's, that it's different. Um, as, as we you mentioned the incident and I want to jump back to Jared for a moment, uh, you know, Jared, you're a trained psychologist. I, I, you certainly know far, far more about this than I do. I've talked um, with groups about uh, the impact of violence in schools. I've talked about uh, the, the, uh, need for um, attention to the the trust and um, and ethos of of caring that needs to, be, to need to exist in a school. Um, as we think about what happened, and it just again using this as a case, as we think about what was happening, uh, what happened is that uh, an officer was called into um, the room, and and um, there has been a lot of speculation about. So what was going through the child's head? So from what we can see, and of course we don't know um, a lot about what happened early, but what we can see is that the child is sitting in the in the in the desk and is forcibly removed from the desk. And so I want you to say a little bit about what we need to understand also about um, what is the. Uh, fight in, fight or flight response that can take over, and I'm saying one way or another if that's what happened here, but it certainly, uh, from what I see from a novice point of view, it certainly fits it to me that with, with the child being wrestled around the neck, that that would be a reasonable uh, um, response uh, in terms of fight or flight, and that what happens physiologically when when a threat is perceived or real uh, like that, just just so our audience can get a, a sense of the, the the mechanisms at play
3: here. Yeah, that's an important question because the better we understand what's going on within the child, within the system, whether that system is a classroom or a school, the better we'll be able to intervene in a more constructive way. And without being there, it's unfair to do too much speculation about what was going through the child's mind, the teacher, the, the resource officer. But to be so mm-hmm. hypothetical about it, um, you know, we might say that this particular child was experiencing some sort of mistrust, of need to assume power, um, mm-hmm. whether there was some fear that caused her to be more Uh, rigid and and, and sort of paralyzed, or whether it's this outward sense of, listen, my control is being taken away, and the only way I know how to assume volition is to assume a stance of defiance. Mm -hmm. Without knowing exactly what was happening, it's likely that there was tension, there was fear, there was this sense of, I don't want to be embarrassed in front of my classmates, and the act of not acting was indicative of something that was going on under the surface that, you know, because of perhaps the, the lack of awareness or the the reactivity of the school, we weren't able to uncover. And that's, I think, the message for educators and other leaders in schools is that behavior is driven by needs, unmet needs, needs that are feeling threatened. And if we can tap into that, we're going to do a better job of of downplaying the resistance.
1: Sure, sure. So we're going to take a a few calls here. We have um, a caller, um, others that if you desire to call in, 657-383-1481 is the number. Again, 657-383-1481. And so we have a caller from Atlanta. Um, Please state your question. Hello, caller? Hello, caller? Okay, it seems like we dropped the Atlanta call. Uh, We have another call. Um, Caller from uh, what appears to be New York. Caller from New York. Hello, Dr. Perkins? Yes. Hi, this is Dave Hardy calling actually from St. Louis. Okay. Um, Very interesting dialogue uh, that that I'm hearing back and forth. And um, the one thing that struck me about the last comments that were made um, around um, potentially the fear or, or some kind of insecurity that was occurring.
4: <clears throat>
1: My question really is based on this this element of trust. Um, it seems like without knowing what happened prior to the incident, there was an erosion of trust or a lack of trust. Where do we go as
2: schools to actually build
3: a level of trust so things like that don't escalate? Okay. Either of you want to take that? Yeah, it's, a, it's really a wonderful question. Do you, do you mind, Kurt, if I if I jump in first?
2: Sure, absolutely, absolutely. The
3: the idea of trust is so paramount in schools, and it's and it goes on at every level. It's trust that the teachers will feel supported by the administrators, the administrators will feel supported by the community, and ultimately the students and parents will feel a trust that their child's best interest in ha- is had. And when that starts to break down, which happens for many many different reasons, right? the... The the job satisfaction of the teachers is low, the pressure to accomplish is high, the expectations are are unreasonable, unlimited number of factors. When that trust starts to break down, people start to become more of a survival of the fittest type of mentality, and that leads to more fractions. Uh, People go into groups in order to feel safer. And when people have that kind of mentality is that they're more apt to respond to perceived threats as though they were real threats.
1: Okay. Thank you, Jared. Um, Kurt, you had something to add?
2: Well, you know, I was just going to say, you know, that's a great question, especially when you're introducing the unique role of an officer who's typically armed in uniform on campus, we try to tell these new officers that are going onto campus that you know it's it's behoove of you as an officer to make sure that you work toward building your trust among the student body and and of course the faculty and staff. And one of the ways we do that is to make sure that we're getting inside the classroom. We're almost using like a triad approach. You're there as a mentor. Uh, you're there as a teacher in the classrooms, introducing yourself, talking about stranger danger or other. Law-related education topics, and also that of a law enforcement officer, but that you build that reputation, and, and you look back at some of the elements of this particular case that unfolded, um, and there are two things that jump out at you. One is that this officer, you know, um, was was also an assistant football coach. He'd been there for a while. He almost he, had, he developed a nickname on campus: "This Officer Slam," more relating to the football side of the house, but it became almost widespread to where you could understand and listen to the interview with the young people there, that they perceived it as a different type of officer slam, um, one that was very negative in taste. So that, that, that hurt the reputation of the officer from the beginning. But secondly was, and I go back to my first comment, was where the the, the staff on that campus have to be well-trained because this case pure and simple was the perfect example of a case that never should have risen to the level of requiring a law enforcement officer response to it. This was a defiance case where a kid was being defiant in class. Um, it went from a simple school rule violation to a criminal matter involving prosecution and the courts, and it went there in less than two minutes. And the officer was uh, did not have the skills at this point to to use the intervention techniques that we train. You know, I've had this situation play out numerous times in my career as an officer. And the first thing you want to do is remove the student's audience, the rest of the students who are there dealing, if it even comes to the fact that the officer is called. So it was really one of those cases that could have been avoided from the early onset. And I'll leave you with one thing I tell administrators all over this country when they use an officer in a classroom like this, is, is this a situation where, if the officer wasn't assigned to your school, would you have picked up the phone and dialed nine one one? And the answer is typically not. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Very helpful. Thank you.
2: Yes. No. Th- thank you. Um,
1: and and you know you you made some really good points there, and I think um, it, it's it's hard obviously because we none of us were there. Um, however. Uh, what we're talking about here is really on the front end, is, is what, what would we want to have happen in a best-case scenario? Um, and I, th- I think that's a good threshold to um, to have administrators that might be listening to understand is that it doesn't meet the threshold of calling 911, uh, where you have to have a uniformed police officer armed uh, to intervene. Um so we have uh, another caller uh, from four seven oh area code caller are you
4: there? yes, i am okay your question please can you hi this is uh DeMarco moultrie coming in, calling in from atlanta georgia um a okay. couple of points I wanted to make um the first point um i think there's a huge distinction between uh, i believe the gentleman was a staff member of the um uh deputy sheriff department uh, and sro and one of your panelists mentioned that earlier and um while that model does work in a lot of smaller districts where they cannot afford a full staff um school resource officer um division Um, When you bring in an outside deputy who is used to working a street beat and dealing with those type of threats, um, then I think there has to be specific training um, before that officer is allowed to work in a a school environment. They have to receive, receive training that makes them aware of all of the unique things that come along with working with students, because most school resource officers who work for a school district Um, have that training and understand student behavior in a lot of different ways um, and know um, that um, that type of what we saw would would be absolutely last worst case scenario last resort type behavior and my other point is um, I think teacher the teacher that classroom teacher um, should be in the spotlight more and, and should be asked more questions because As uh, one of the other panelists stated, was this the type of situation where a um, school resource officer or a deputy should have been called? If we're talking about a student not giving up a phone, um, then that is just a basic violation of school uh, communication policy. If the student didn't want to leave, then that is something that go on. By all means, deliver instruction. The student did not appear to be being disruptive. Um, And handle that after class and I think once he opened the door um, and and called or pushed the button for that officer to come down that's where this started going south and um, lastly I think I don't know for sure if that teacher had the background information but we're finding out that that child had recently just I believe went through some traumatic experiences um, like her mother had passed and Foster care, some other things came up, and so immediately when this student's name came up in the school, um, someone should have identified the student as a student that was in jeopardy, that was uh, in a bad place, um, and needed specialized attention as opposed to just um, the strong arm of the law or just a teacher who may have been embarrassed or ego may have been hurt because they could not get the student to comply. Sure, sure. Thank you, and
1: um. um Jared, um, I, I'd like to hear a little bit from you about what your your direct experience has been. Um, the caller and, um, mentioned uh, a few things, but particularly around teachers being trained. I know Kurt has talked about um, the officers being trained. Um, I know you do some training in terms of school violence prevention and, and specifically organizational health and uh, of of the schools and and you talk about personal wellness uh with regard to the the educators um when it comes down to us looking at teacher teacher training i i started my career in education in teacher education pre-service teacher education and i can, i can say that i know that we don't spend a lot of time in that we have uh one class essentially that students learn um Techniques of classroom management, but certainly it's not enough. You can't do everything. Uh, but you're involved in what is probably some of the in-service teaching, uh, in, in-service training of teachers. Uh, what is the work? Uh, you, could, you could tell us a little bit about the work you do to to help teachers in this area.
3: Certainly, I know Kurt and I are both interested in training. Kurt offers a wonderful annual conference that is open for educators and SROs and anybody in education. And I've spoken at that conference, and I'm tremendously impressed at how receptive and interested uh, people are in learning. So Kurt may want to talk more about that. And, and from my perspective, I I think the training needs to become um, more... More important to schools it it tends to be what's most easily uh, disrupted by budget cuts and it tends to be focused on some of the the latest uh, paradigms of teaching but we don't seem to put enough energy into both the personal growth of educators and the professional development nor do we put enough energy I think into the organizational health of the school and without doing that, we potentiate uh, school cultures that are more reactive, that tend to be distressed systems, that um, I think lay the groundwork for these types of incidents because we don't know in this case if the teacher responded because of something that's been going on that, during the course of that day, the month, the year. And it would be unfair of us to say that anybody should have done something differently because we don't know the collective whole, all the different influences in that school and in those people's lives that contributed to what took place in that particular day. Yeah, sure, sure.
1: Makes sense. Uh, We have another caller from Chicago. Caller, please uh, take the question.
5: Uh, Yes, my question is I would just like to piggyback on what the caller from Atlanta um, just referenced. Uh, having worked for a state agency where um, we took guardianship of kids in foster care, I don't know if this is the case with this kid, but that's what social media is saying. Why weren't there advocates in the school that could have come to this child's re- uh, rescue prior to um, Officer Slam? arriving uh, to to toss her out of her chair. You know, one of my jobs in a role as social worker when I was in uh, the state agency was once a kid was placed in a school... It was my responsibility to go and visit that school, talk with the counselor, and let them know that you know this. You are the person that have been that's been identified for this child to come to, and I'm just wondering why wasn't that available for her? Uh, I'm not sure. You know, I can only assume that this wasn't a school of wealth, and and uh, they didn't have the the resources for this. But I, I just really see that she was. She was just. It was just. She. It was failure to start with. Thank
3: you. Either me or comment? Yeah, I, you know, as a social worker, you are having an appreciation for the underlying issues that might have influenced this child to be in the state of mind that she was in, and that's terrific because if we were all to do that and we could differentiate hostility from depression, you know, when children get depressed, that we often see oppositional and defined type behaviors. If it felt safe for the child to do it, if we had people recognizing the warning signs, we might be in a better position to be able to offset some of these types of problems before they come to fruition. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. Uh we have another caller calling in from um Atlanta. Um uh, Atlanta caller. Oh
0: uh, yeah. Uh, another group from Atlanta. We have a group of people in the room. Uh, I'll let this young lady go first. My question is: Why was such force used? Did was that a, was it necessary? You know, could something else have been done to prevent you know such force being used to this young lady, regardless of what the issue was? Kurt, why
2: don't well, you I'll take that one? Uh, sure, I'll go ahead and chime in. That you know as as a police officer who's been in, again in, in this situation on a number of times, it's it's hard to look at that video and make a determination that that was the appropriate amount of force used. Because in my estimation, in my mind, it was it was way over the limit in terms of force used, and I think that was also I had happened to be in Chicago at the time speaking, and I was with the sheriff from that agency. And obviously the result of his findings were also that the force was unnecessary and hence why the officer was so quickly terminated. But in toward the question of what could have been done, as I mentioned before, um, force and physical you know, issues like that are the last realm on that continuum of force that we want to see used in law enforcement. Um, officers are provided a number of tools, most of them, do not include the use of force. Most of them include things like verbal de-escalation. And when I've had that scenario play out on a number of times in my career as an officer and, and when I was called in a situation like that, the first thing I would have hoped the administrator would have done before I even got there was to, at the very minimum, remove the rest of those students, have them go to the cafeteria, a library. Because once you remove that audience, um, you remove, you'll take, that student down a few, let her calm down, let her relax, understand that young people are in crisis when you get there. Um, I've used the technique of just walking in the room and having the student's parent on the phone, on my cell phone, and just saying, hey, uh, Rebecca, can you talk to your mom? Uh, Your mom's on the phone. Nobody wants to put her in jail. That should have been the absolute last thing you moved toward. There are so many different variables in between that that you could have used to de-escalate that situation. And sadly enough, you, again, you saw this thing go from a simple rule violation to a criminal act in under two minutes.
1: Sure, sure Kurt, and I'm, I really appreciate uh, what you're saying here uh, real, and, and in terms of the, the stages where that we need to be aware of that, um, and it's good to know that, it doesn't start with because I have a gun or a taser or uh, a billy club that that's where it starts. Um, that um, that the de-escalation is is really crucial in conflict resolution. Um, that um, in in this case, you know, again, without seeing much before, uh, you know, I think it, it is it's reasonable to say that um, there wasn't a lot of of talking that happened. Um, with this and and that's in part uh, one of the issues that I think is hard to digest. But I want to go back to this whole idea of being in crisis. And I, I mentioned it earlier um, that when I was talking about what happens when someone uh, feels threatened and and whether it is self imposed threat, uh, someone putting themselves in a situation. These are in most cases so both psychological and physiological responses uh to and and they are fear responses in most cases um and I and I, I want uh, Jared I, I, I would love if you would uh talk a little bit about this too and we'll get back to some of the other callers in the room with our group there um is that um as i understand uh, when people have this 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 response that what happens, especially with the introduction of adrenaline to the system, that uh reasoning goes out the window, logic goes out the window, and so people are really not thinking with uh, the with all of the capacity in their upper the cerebral cortex part of their brain, but that they're really more in survival mode, and that's just not and I just want to frame it that way you know, for us to discuss, it's not about whether or not this child was there or not, but that it would be reasonable to me that when someone puts their arms around your neck, that that's what can happen. Um, And so that we need both teachers and SRO officers to understand what to expect if you escalate or fail to escalate. But Jared, I'd like, you know, you to talk a little bit about from both that, Physiological, psychological point of view.
3: Yeah, both. It's an important point because both systems and individuals can be reactive, and and that happens when we're not being uh, proactive, when we're, our resiliency isn't strong, and we become more rigid and flexible. And as I said before, we start to deal with real and imagined threats um, with a greater intensification. And if we can get on board with helping students improve their resiliency, then we're gonna make them more apt to learn and we're gonna decrease the potential for these kind of incidents. And that could be done in many ways. It could be done through a term I call constructive differencing, which is teaching both kids and adults that when we learn how to explore and be curious about differences, it actually deepens our intimacy with another person and it strengthens our resiliency. And this by the way we haven't talked about it yet and we may or it may not ties into racial differences. And we also work on the idea that kids need to become more mindful. They're spending their entire days sort of cerebrally challenged and stimulated, but they're not we're not spending time helping them learn how to become centered and grounded, which happens through mindfulness, which happens through teaching them about philosophy and phenomenology so that they can learn how to pay more attention to themselves in relation so they can increase their tolerance for distress and become less reactive.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so let's switch back to our group was uh, in the room in Atlanta. Um, Next uh, comment? Uh,
0: Yes, we have one in regards to what exactly – are the roles or the responsibility of the resource officers in the school uh, capacity in terms of uh, engaging and overall management of the school and the classroom?
2: Um, Well I'll go ahead and and, and just jump in here with regard to what we try to teach school resource officers. In, In that particular role in, in terms of classroom management, management, the officer really does not have a, shouldn't have a role at all. That's not one of the basic, fundamental tasks that we would see or want to see an officer assigned to a school be charged with. Those officers are typically there. Uh, you know, the, this program dates as far back as the 1950s. That's when the resource officer program began, and it was started because they wanted to helped bridge the gap between young people and law enforcement, and they did so successfully with the SRO program, the D.A.R.E. program with Stranger Danger and programs like that, and uh, it morphed into even larger programs such as uh, Cops and Kids in the Community. And truly, the program, as I mentioned earlier, has had tremendous success around the country in doing just that. Unfortunately, Sometimes as we travel around the country, and I do school safety assessments, I've done one in probably every one of the 50 states, you see programs like this that have gone astray because either the training's not there or they're putting the wrong officer into the the wrong position. Um, in some cases, it's been as bad as departments using the SRO program as a dumping ground for officers they don't want to deal with out on the streets, so they put them in a school. And And I can't think of anything more damaging than mm-hmm. examples of this. And those those are very real issues that we see going on around the country, um, not only in the school but in, in modern policing, um, because we're trying to really move up and, and step up and professionalize this career as we do, but you have to be so very careful in the selection of the the right officer doing the right job for the right reason. I tell officers every year when I speak to them at our conference, if you don't like working with young people, get out. This is not the job for you.
0: So what are we putting in place, or what are you all putting in place to ensure that nothing like this takes place again and to make sure that the right officers with the right disposition and uh, demeanor are placed in the school districts.
2: Sure. You know, it's 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 a very difficult task what you're what you're asking because we're not a regulatory agency. We're we're the school safety advocacy council. We don't regulate departments. However, this very case when this thing broke, I was up speaking in Chicago to the International Association of Chiefs of Police, which is the premier training organization for the executive officers that oversee the majority of departments in this country. And we're trying to work when we were tasked with the very real task of making sure that departments understand this program better, that they understand there's a very real schoolyard to prison pipeline that exists in this country. Um, and some chiefs have to stop burying their heads in the sand that this exists because it does exist There are racial disparities in this country. We know that. And so we hope that organizations like the IACP, uh, the National Sheriff's Association, will make this an annual part of their training efforts. And also I have to applaud uh, the White House because the White House has done a lot, President Obama, to make sure that we have guidelines and funding. And that funding, before you can use that funding to put officers in schools, it's mandated that they have a minimal amount of training uh, to make sure they understand these unique rules. So we have done some things, but there's a lot more we can do.
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, Thank you to the group in uh, Atlanta for uh, listening in and calling. Um, So, you know, it's, it's complicated. Obviously we, we know that we, we don't have all the answers to the specific South Carolina case, but I think, what we are in agreement on is that we can learn some things, and so I think for me my one of my takeaways is that you that for our policymakers out there uh, that if if we view that um, school resource officers in in certain um, uh, situations are needed, that we need to be clear about what the processes are for getting school these officers involved uh, if we're talking about municipalities and cities around the country that are going to be a part of this effort, uh, that, um, we, we do something about the training and it should not be a dumping ground for officers who've had problems in the past. That's, that's and I think, uh, it is a disaster to have that happen. Um, a lot of times, not unlike what happens with, uh, teachers and where we've experienced over and over again that um, the first thing in a budget crunch to get cut is the professional development. And in in some cases, there's not uh, enough resource put into development, both of teachers, administrators, and and in this case, the SROs, to understand that we do need some procedures in place um, to, to deal with these. And I think you, you 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 just mentioned a very uh, important strategy of de-escalation. I mean, how how powerful is it that there's a connection though um, to someone in authority? Now it may or may not have worked in this situation, but I think hopefully there are people out there that heard what you said, um, Kurt, about the de-escalation technique of simply that you've employed—simply getting somebody on the line. Um, that could get to reach this child. But the most disturbing piece for me about it in in both as I reflect on um, my childhood experience in elementary, middle, and high school is that there was almost always one adult in a school uh, that could reach – it didn't matter who and how the child acted out – that they had enough of a relationship where they could reach the child and they could come in and they would be the one that if the child was acting out to say, come with me, it's going to be okay, and that it did not appear, as our callers from Chicago said, it did not appear to be that scaffolding that is around, um, that was wrapped around this child. And I think um, also a takeaway for me has been that we need to think more about the scaffolding. Um, so we ask our schools to do a lot, and it's a complicated uh, process of, of education, and, and not all children are prepared to be um, constructively engaged, but it's our responsibility. And, and so as adults in the circumstances, both psychologically, we have to be prepared to deal with tough situations. Uh, we, it is changing. There are things that we're seeing today that we wouldn't have seen 10, 15, 20 years ago, but we can't sit around and talk about, well, I remember we would have never done that. Well, today is different. Um, and so we have to figure out how to deal with that. And and so if you know, what, and I think, you know, kind of the last thing that I, I think is important for us to consider is there are things that have happened for years. Now we have reached a a place in our society where almost everyone has the ability to record live situations. And so now a lot of things that we would have otherwise never seen are now being recorded and reported on um, in a matter of minutes throughout the, the world. And I think so in a good way, the technology has facilitated and ushered in a new era of accountability and that the accountability is is exposing in this case the lack of training in some for some and and the also what we need in order to provide support and help for our children once they are in distress um and and I just want to point out that um the reason I'm intentionally um, really not as focused on the child's action, but there are adults that are responsible for being in, in control in those schools. And sometimes it gets lost. Um, but in the message for me, it is that we have to be proactive and, and be ready to deal with whatever comes uh, because it is our job and our responsibility. So um, I want to thank both of you for um, this uh wonderful discourse on the situation um for those of you who know um, more about jared's work you can go to www.teachercoach.com uh, and then also for those of you who want to hear and um, see more about what they're doing with the school safety advocacy council um, they are at www.schoolsafety911.org so again Thank you to both of you um, for being on the show. Uh, join us um, on November 18th at 2 p.m. when we have Dr. David Brady uh, who's going to join us. So, for our listeners, uh, we will see you next time. So, go well, stay well.